This is episode 110 of Relate on the Positive Potential of AI with Renee Cummings. We are spending more and more time in the online world, looking through our screens and increasingly disconnected with those around us. But studies have proven that it's real-life meaningful relationships that bring us the most joy and happiness. It's all about human connection and conversing with people from a variety of backgrounds. Worlds change when eyes meet. So let's sit down and relate. I am your host, Patrick McAndrew, and welcome to another episode of Relate. In this episode, we are talking about artificial intelligence, AI, and why this is very prevalent today, especially with all the COVID stuff going on. Really, we are entering into a world where AI is going to become very normal. And in fact, really, a lot of us are using AI nowadays without even realizing it. And our guest for this episode, Renee Cummings, talks to us about this. She talks to us about the ethical approach to developing AI and why this is always going to compete with innovation and how important it is to really balance these two things together. Specifically from Renee's background, we talk about a social justice approach to technological design, why this is important, and why it's so crucial to have diversity, equity, and inclusion in the design of technology. I think this is a very interesting conversation that not a lot of people are talking about, but Renee sheds light on. Renee also discusses why data is power, how to include each other in the design of artificial intelligence, and also the potential that is present with AI, how AI really has the power to empower us so long as the general public are included in the conversation when it comes to the design of artificial intelligence, as opposed to just leaving big tech to figure it out for us. So this is a very engaging conversation with Renee. A little bit about our guest, Renee. Renee Cummings is a criminologist and criminal psychologist, as well as a respected AI ethicist and AI strategist. She's also a community scholar at Columbia University in New York City and the CEO and founder of Urban AI. Advocating for more diverse, equitable, and inclusive AI, she's on the front line of ethical AI, generating real-time responses to many of the unintentional consequences of artificial intelligence. Renee is also the East Coast lead for women in AI ethics. She specializes in AI for social good, justice-oriented AI design, social justice in AI policy and governance, and using AI to save lives. She's committed to using AI to empower and transform communities and helping governments and organizations navigate the AI landscape and develop future artificial intelligence leaders. So Renee is coming at this discussion with a very positive outlook as to what AI can do for our future and also how it can empower our humanity. 
This is a very great episode because Renee really brings her passion to this show. You could tell she's really passionate about this, and it shows in the way that she speaks about her career, about her work. And I'm a true believer that this is very critically important information as technology continues to advance. So if you like this episode, please share it with a friend who you think it might resonate with. And if you are feeling inclined to, head on over to Apple Podcasts, leave a review, let me know your thoughts on this episode and on the Relate Podcast. So with all of that said, let me please introduce today's guest on Relate, Renee Cummings. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Relate. Today's guest is Renee Cummings. Renee, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Oh, thank you so much, Patrick. I'm really excited to have you uh, on, on the show and to have this conversation. We had the opportunity to connect, I guess, a, a few months ago, and then we met very briefly at uh, an All Tech is Human event happening in uh, New York City run by David Ryan Polder, who's also uh, been a guest on the show in the past as well. And I'm just, I'm very excited to talk with you because you're doing some incredibly important work when it comes to artificial intelligence and technology. And specifically your work with urban AI is something that I'm really looking forward to diving into. So thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. So I'm wondering if you could just start off by sharing with our listeners just a little bit about yourself, maybe a little bit about your background and what led you on the path that you're pursuing today. Certainly. So I'm a criminologist and a criminal psychologist. And for the last 14 years, I've been training law enforcement across the globe. I, I specialize in homicide uh, prevention and the homicide investigation, as well as gun and gang violence uh, prevention, but pretty much I do anything when it comes to crime prevention and reducing criminality, from working in uh, juvenile justice to uh, terrorism. I also have a background in terrorism studies uh, with a focus on the uh, psychodynamics of terrorism and counterterrorism. So that's my background, pretty much criminal justice, but I didn't begin there. I began as a journalist working in print. Then I worked on television for many years. I was also uh, a female sportscaster. That's what I did in my own. Oh, wow. Years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then I went into uh, psychology and mental health. And I worked as a substance abuse therapist uh, within the uh, New York uh, City criminal justice system, working with individuals who took an alternative to incarceration uh, to deal with rehabilitation and treatment. So I have this really solid uh, psychology and psychotherapy background that I merged with uh, criminology because it was while I was working as a substance abuse therapist, I realized that all my clients had a background also in crime. So I was looking at that connection between crime and, and substance abuse, and that's what really led me on the path to uh, criminology. And then 
practicing as a criminologist over the last two years or more, I started to see the advent of uh, risk assessment tools, these algorithmic decision systems in the criminal justice system, coming up with decisions, you know, life and liberty uh, sort of decisions, and, and really uh, investigating uh, these algorithms and interrogating these algorithms and realizing that what we were seeing was really a definite case of machine bias. And it is because of that understanding of bias and discrimination and what we call these uh, zombie uh, predictions where the algorithms were overestimating whether or not someone would reoffend. And we were always also seeing these really um, opaque algorithms that were sort of frustrating uh, due process within the criminal justice system. So that was my entree, my, how, that's how I sort of entered uh, uh, artificial intelligence from the intersection of uh, criminology and criminal psychology. Yeah, it's incredibly important work that you're now starting to dissect. I, th I think that it's uh, really, really a field that people who are developing the AI, I think, uh, at least from, from my knowledge, a lot of them tend to be white males. And I think that there are just these biases that get ingrained into the building of this technology that they're not even thinking about. And so it's, I, I, in my opinion, it's crucially important to have people like yourselves who are really, really dissecting into how the, you know, the machines are being programmed, why, why these algorithms are the way that they are. Really, I guess, what have been the consistencies that you found across the spectrum that has led you to believe that like, okay, these are specific problems that we need to fix. You know, I don't look at it as problems. I always like to look at things as challenges. And AI is something that's relatively new. And as we build this technology, we would always find that an ethical approach is going to compete with innovation. And one of the things that I have always uh, liked to understand is that where do people come from, you know, uh, psychologically? And it's, it's really important for me. So what I've been seeing is, of course, implicit bias, right? So subconsciously, we all have these stereotypes that make us who we are. And what we've been seeing is that many of the consequences of these stereotypes in artificial intelligence are not intentional. I don't think people go there and, and, and sit down and try to design things that are going to harm or hurt or exclude people. But what I think we do need would be a little more vigilance, psychological vigilance, what I call a more robust consciousness, that requisite understanding that you've got to apply certain measures of due diligence to ensure that concepts like due process and duty of care are respected in the design process. So I think what I do take would be more of a social justice approach to design or a justice-oriented design approach. And what I'm saying is that um, technologists, emerging technologists, the full spectrum of, of, of scientists who work with data have just got to have a more robust consciousness when it comes to understanding the dynamics of any given society. So this is why I advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion in the design process. 
and across the life cycle of any design when it comes to any uh, technological or data-driven uh, system. It's, it's really important for me that we have that level of inclusion because to exclude means that we are undermining the design process because if there is diversity, there would definitely be a myriad or myriad possibilities. So I like to speak about possibilities because of diversity. It's not a, a negative, you know, for many designers, they feel, well, you know, people are coming to advocate for something. It's not really advocating for something, but it's just ensuring, we ensure that around the table that, you know, we have really a diverse cross-section on those seats. I really love that perspective a lot because you're you're absolutely right that, that AI artificial intelligence is really this this new industry. I think a lot of people are still trying to figure out how it works and how it can benefit humanity. And I think your approach with regards to thinking about the possibilities especially when it comes to diversity and inclusion being embedded into the design. I think the, I think this is so important because as I think technology continues to advance, it, it really, like now's the time to to program these things into the design because it's, it's at the early stages. I, I know something that you also talk a lot about in your work is, is urban AI. And I'm just wondering for our listeners who might be unfamiliar with this term, what what is urban AI and why is it so important? Well, for me, I believe that uh, as we are seeing more and more, and in particular because we're now in the midst of this pandemic, that AI is going to be used to deliver more and more solutions to us coexisting in an urban environment. It was because New York City is, is so urban and is so urbanly dense that we were affected or impacted in real time at such a level. So urban AI is looking at the AI solutions we could use in an urban space, but it's also celebrating, recognizing, and respecting the diversity of urban populations. Really, really important. So in New York, when it came to COVID-19, we saw that all communities were impacted, but we saw that our, our Latin and our, our Black communities were impacted even more. We saw in the Bronx, uh, we had really high levels there as well. We saw in Brooklyn and in Queens, where we have diverse populations as well. In, in Brooklyn, we have our Afro-American, our Afro-Caribbean, you know, Afro-Latin. We have all these diversities. So urban AI is a response to diversity, equity inclusion in the urban space. It's also about empowering, right? It's about empowering individuals in an urban environment to understand technology. So while it's pretty new and it's something that I'm now developing, it's about developing product, but it's also about public engagement in the development of that product. And it's about public education and building public awareness because data is power. You know, data is power. And people have got to understand how powerful their data could be. And they've got to understand the bigger questions around it. So urban AI is really about understanding 
that the urban environment are the new labs and that's where all the experiments are going to happen but it's also about protecting those individuals demystifying the data for them and empowering them with the knowledge so that they could participate in what is being done in their community there was a word that you specifically used uh empower that i think is super super critical when it comes to AI and really educating a wide variety of different populations. I think sometimes, I, I know this is the case for myself, where like sometimes I'm hesitant about AI because it's easy to like fall down into like the rabbit hole of like the potential negatives with regards to it. But I really love how you're talking about how AI has the power to empower. And so with that said, how do you believe that AI can empower specifically urban communities? Well, I would say this, and I've always said it, you know, AI is a very powerful piece of technology. It is also very pervasive because of the speed at which AI moves. So what we have with AI is the potential to reimagine and create the kind of society that we want. But what we are seeing, it is because of that lack of diversity and the fact that we're not paying attention to topics like equity and because we are not including each other in the design process, we are really undermining ourselves when it comes to using the technology to empower. Now we know about the disinformation campaign, we know about the deep fakes, and we know AI could also be used to create crises, right? To create critical situations or critical incidents on social media. But what we need to know is that we have to educate urban communities, all communities. We've got to educate all societies about the power of AI because what we're also seeing, it, there's a grab, you know, when you think about it, there's a, a, a race or a grab for power uh, by the big tech companies when it comes to our data. And right, many people right. may not be thinking about that. That could be a cold war in itself, right? That could be <laughs> the next cold war that we're in right now. Right, but people yeah. have got to understand that. People have got to understand what's going on. So it's about ensuring that you are educated on this technology so that you will be empowered, right? You will be an educated consumer of AI and you will understand as well, how do I use this technology to empower myself, to empower my community, to empower my country? It's about giving people, you know, that opportunity to think creatively with this technology and to be able to weave this technology into the everyday fabric of their lives to ensure that they have some measure of, 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 of equilibrium as well as access uh, to this technology to ensure that that equity is there as well. Yeah, I, I really love, and this kind of goes back to what you were saying before about inclusion. I, I love how you're mentioning that really AI is this opportunity to include each other in the design and, and really get creative with how AI grows over time and how it develops. And I, I really love what you're saying about making that a larger conversation for really the, the like a 
different communities as opposed to just the big tech companies and really educating ourselves on how we can use technology to the utmost potential and to its fullest benefit and really to use your words to be an educated consumer. I think this, this is so important. Oh, definitely it is. Because what we have seen, particularly with AI, there's a lot of fear and anxiety when it comes to AI. Because I think many people have this impression of this massive robot that is going to step out of the skies, that then we would all stand up and say, wow, AI is here. It's not going to happen <laughs> like that, right? Yeah. So people need to understand you have been using AI. You've been using AI, if you're using Netflix, if you're doing online shopping, if you're using certain personal health uh, tools, uh, if you're using the internet, if you're on any social media platform, you've already been exposed, right? right you've already yeah. been exposed to AI. But you've also got to understand what's happening behind the scenes. You've got to understand what slips through the back door of design optimization or what we may call default design. And why does default design always include some measure of bias, some measure of discrimination? We've got to ask ourselves those questions. So this is why I have always said, because so many of the big mistakes when it comes to AI have happened in the criminal justice context, right? We have seen those risk assessments. ProPublica, I think 2016, did an expose, an in-depth investigation on machine bias in the criminal justice system. We've seen the challenges with facial recognition. And now because of COVID-19, we are seeing many of the tools that are being designed for tracking and for isolating and for self-quarantine are being designed with a law enforcement sensibility. We're also seeing the merger of public health and national security when it comes to a pandemic because people can't travel as we want to travel. Borders have been closed. A vaccine may become a prerequisite for international travel. So we've seen that merger of public health and national security. And these are things that have got to make us start thinking about our data, about our privacy, about the power of AI. Who's collecting our data? What are they going to do with it? When does it expire? Do I have the right to be forgotten? These are big questions. And more and more because of this pandemic, we are going to see the trade-off between privacy and healthcare. We are going to see, maybe and we hope we don't, situations of forced consent where people give up their rights to data privacy because they need immediate health care. People uh, allow themselves to be tracked and to be monitored because of the, the technology that's being designed to prevent this pandemic uh, and to, to, to keep us safe. So what we are seeing is, and we are going to see more and more, would be a proliferation of many technologies that also are being uh, led or being, uh, the data is being collected by law enforcement. We're already seeing that in China and in Israel and in many countries where the data for COVID-19 is being collected uh, by law enforcement and national security. Uh, we're seeing it in Singapore where your, your healthcare uh, your health information, your credit card information, uh, all of these things are, are being combined for them to track you. So my thing is this, I've always said that criminal justice, because of how 
critical a space it is. And because we have seen the many challenges of AI in that space, I, I've always said that uh, AI must have a conscience and criminal justice is the conscience of AI. So that's why I am so vigilant. That's why I like to ensure the checks and balances are there. That's why I, I really speak about having a moral imagination. Because what I've been seeing over the years would be a vocabulary of apology. We see that with the big tech companies when there is a crisis, when an, an, auto, uh, an, an algorithmic decision system does something that is definitively biased or discriminatory. And we have seen that with, with, with imaging. We have seen that in hiring. We have seen it in healthcare. We have seen it in, in finance and banking. We have seen it when it comes to denying people public benefits, right? We have seen all of those things. So it really is important to encourage that moral imagination. And I keep saying, I am tired of that vocabulary of apology in technology. And it is time for a vocabulary of advocacy. And that's the intersection that I am at now. And that's why I promote uh, ethical thinking when it comes to technology. And that's why I say it must always be fair, accountable, transparent, explainable, and responsible. And I think those are values that I will stand for as I continue understanding and learning more about AI and really contributing to more of a collective consciousness of inclusion uh, for this technology. Wow. <laughs> this is, I, I really appreciate, like I could tell how passionate you are about this and it's because of, it's because, it's because of people like you who have, who have this passion that like I, I'm a strong believer that that you and then the, the people that you work with as well, that you're really going to make some positive change when it comes to just the development of artificial intelligence. But not only the development of it, but also our approach to it as well. I think that's a conversation that not a lot of people are having. Is like, okay, how how can we uh, as humans approach AI? And I think that. Uh, you know, as as you've just shared, there's there's been a lot uncovered with regards to the role of AI in, in the criminal justice system. And I love how you mentioned how criminal justice, in a lot of ways, is the conscious uh, conscience of AI. How how do you believe that AI can help improve the criminal justice system? Well, we've actually seen it already. You know, we've seen that AI is very important criminal justice um, when it comes to predictive policing, which is still very contentious, but if used uh, properly and ethically can have a great impact. So uh, it's about a lot of data. And as criminal justice practitioners, we need that data because that data helps us to be more effective, more efficient, and it's, it's about uh, being more expedient when it comes to the kinds of policies what we're designing. But the challenge that we have, why predictive analytics uh, creates intelligence-led uh, policing and precision policing and helps us when it comes to problem solving, there's also the peril that because of the fact that the police data has been historically dirty uh, because of, of, of years of discrimination and uh, poor policing practices, 
uh, what we find is if we continue to use dirty data, we really get ourselves in a situation where we continue to over-police particular communities. So much of the predictive policing algorithms and apps are all focused on street crime. But what about those crimes in the suites, right? The financial crimes. Uh, we're not looking at that from an app perspective. Although three sociologists did come together and they designed a fantastic predictive analytic uh, policing system looking at Manhattan and showing us on a grid where all the financial criminals live and work and why we need to put our resources there as well. But of course, you know, policing has been, uh, you know, from the history of Robert Peel and the Metropolis, Metropolitan Police in London, policing was created to police the poor. So we, we still need to deal with that mentality as a profession. But we've seen it when it comes to DNA, very, very impactful. We've seen if facial recognition is used responsibly and ethically, it can have an impact. And the NYPD has been uh, dealing with that and using that. We have seen uh, when it comes to using algorithms to do sentiment analysis on Facebook and Instagram and what our, many of our social workers and psychologists have been looking at would be what we call internet banging or cyber banging, which is the virtual uh, extension of gang banging. And we see that many of the conversations begin on social media and then spill out onto the streets. So what we have are psychologists and sociologists and, and social workers who've been examining those conversations and trying to use algorithms to diffuse gang activity and to ensure that it doesn't turn into homicide, to look at things like workplace violence, uh, mass shootings, and to see if we could use algorithms to really diffuse uh, those situations. We've seen it in all forms of crime prevention. We've seen it in things like uh, detection of, 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 of shootings, uh, gunshot detection. Uh, we've seen it uh, just really across the board. We've seen it when it comes to reducing things like sex trafficking and really empowering victims of, of sexual assault. We've seen it used on uh, you know, college campuses to reduce things like, like sexual violence and, and sexual assault. Uh, we're seeing it in the uh, correction system where we're seeing many e-incarceration tools being developed. But again, where there is promise in the criminal justice system, we've got to be aware of the peril. And because we don't have an ethical approach or a, a structured uh, ethical approach to the design process, we are seeing many things being designed, but we're seeing that they are infringing on people's rights. They are eroding uh, human rights and they're often undermining uh, political rights as well. So while there's much development and we're gonna be seeing so much more, we've got to make that call for ethical emerging technologists. And we've got to ensure that we demand that these algorithms are scrutinized, investigated, interrogated, because what we don't want is to create a police state. What we don't want is people's data to be used against them. And what we don't want is really to, uh, we don't want to see our vulnerable communities being further marginalized or re-victimized. And we're seeing some of that right now. Wow, yeah, it's, that's, it's a lot to unpack. But what you were saying with regards to just 
looking at the context from what you were just describing of how really AI can be used in so many beneficial ways, it is actually very inspiring that like so long as we can get ethical technologists, as you were saying, in place, and so long as we could really implement diversity and inclusion and equity into the design, it, it, it is amazing to then think with that context, like the, the potential of what AI could become. I mean, the potential is extraordinary and we're seeing it. I mean, I'm fascinated by the technology every day. I want to learn more. In as much as I advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion, I'm also being a, doing a lot of work as an AI strategist because I, I specialize in things like AI crisis communication. And when it comes to designing ethical policy for organizations and encouraging organizations to have an ethical um, a culture when it comes to data-driven technologies. And while while I'm doing a lot of work when it comes to understanding bias and risk and reducing bias and risk in the life cycle of the design process and particularly when it comes to deployment. Uh, I really do enjoy this space and really working in that intersection of criminal justice and, and AI and that's why I say, you know, I will continue to demystify data. I will continue to reduce the fear and the anxiety that is spiraling AI and I will encourage everyone I meet at whatever level to really, as I say, learn more, educate yourself about this technology, because we're not going back to what life was. We are now in a new reality. And uh, given that so many of the solutions to so the challenges we face as we attempt to negotiate our way out of this pandemic will be AI driven, people have got to be on it. You've got to be on the ball. You know, you can't be behind the eighth ball when it comes to AI. And that's where so many people are because we know technology often, or well, not often, every time outpaces, right? Uh, even the law. So there are many loopholes there that technologists are able to move through so swiftly that by the time we understand what has been done, it has been done and it may not be able to be corrected. My thing is when we get up at the other side of this tunnel that we're in, people are going to be seeing things that have happened and they're going to be saying, wait a minute, when did that, ha when did that happen? And, and, and that's why I, I really continue to advocate. And that's why I, I want more people to get involved. And I keep telling people, I'm not a data scientist. I'm not a data scientist and, and data science is not the only door into AI. I, I, I'm a criminologist, I'm a, I'm a sociologist and I'm a psychologist and I do have a background in communication so I'm a journalist as well. So I use all of those skills to understand this technology and I think that is what the technology needs. It needs, uh, uh, you know, it is creative but it needs really, uh, how would I, a more, uh, a more political sort of creativity uh, to ensure that, you know, the, the checks and balances are all there. And that measure of, of, of diligence, um, due diligence is, is really uh, appreciated in the process. Right, right. It, it's exciting to, to think about what, like, because you know, to go off what you said, as the the this is the world that we're living in now. Like a AI is going to come; it's going to really advance civilization in so many ways. So it's really important for us to look at those positives. And in kind of going off of that, a lot of what we talk about on the Relate podcast is is about the the importance of 
developing meaningful human connection and relationships in the age of technology and really the importance of our humanity. So I'm wondering from your perspective, um, how, how do we develop a relationship with AI that allows us to hold on to our humanity while still reaping all the, the benefits that come with such advanced technologies? I, I think I will take uh, a term uh, from, I, I consider her a, a scholar in this field. Uh, she's young, dynamic. She's out of, of MIT, uh, Joy Bulawami, and she speaks about uh, compassionate coding. And, and I, I don't know if this, that's the exact term she used, but that's certainly the concept. And it's about compassionate coding when it comes to AI. I will forever be a student of Carl Rogers, you know, that, that great American psychologist. And while I was studying uh, to psychology uh, at the graduate level, and while I was working as a, a substance abuse therapist and working as a rehab specialist in the criminal justice system uh, in Manhattan, uh, I think uh, Rogers has always been the philosophy. And, and he speaks about congruence and that genuineness and that realness and, and something that I, it's my mantra, which is called unconditional positive regard. It's about acceptance and it's about caring. And then accurate, empathetic understanding. So these are the terms. These are the philosophies that have guided me throughout my adult life. And that's what I take to everything that I do. So when it comes to AI, it has got to have a real and genuine feel. And you would only get that if it's diverse and if it's equitable and if it's inclusive. We've got to look at diversity is just not about getting black people involved or getting brown people involved or getting women involved. You know, we have more. We have persons with disabilities, we have sexuality, uh, we have uh, age, uh, we have so many other demographics that need to be in there. So, so we've got to get that myriad of possibilities there. And it's about acceptance and it's about caring. And I think if you are a designer and you use that approach to, of compassionate coding and you, while you are designing, you let your moral imagination run wild, not only your design imagination, right? And if we have a really empathetic understanding of each other, it's about mindfulness. And I think when it comes to AI and it comes to the design and deployment, we need to have that philosophy of mindfulness in what we are doing. And that's why I keep saying at that table, when these technologies are being designed, who is seated at that table? And as I say to people, I may not be able to advocate to give all of us a seat at the table, but know that when the people who sit at that table are there, let them have that consciousness. Let them be vigilant. Let them apply the right kind of thinking. Let them do the right kind of job to ensure when these technologies are deployed, they help us, they heal us, they empower us. You know, they, they make us become better as a people and a society and ensure that the harm, reduce that harm, ensure that the technology doesn't harm. And I'm not saying that an AI design needs to be perfect. Nobody's saying that because we know these are imperfect systems. What we are saying is just give us the confidence that you did the right thing during the design process.
Wow. <laughs> Renee, with all of that said, thank you so much for joining us on the Relate Podcast. Thank you, podcast. Patrick. I, I tell you, I, I not only appreciate you taking the time, but I, I really appreciate your passion for this work and, and just the work that you're doing in general. It's incredibly inspiring just to hear this perspective on artificial intelligence and the potentials that are there to really change our world for the better. So thank you so much for all that you're doing. And thank you so much for considering me to be a part of this extraordinary initiative that you've been promoting. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Before, before heading out, I'm wondering if uh, you could just share with our listeners where they could find out more information about you and your work. Uh, definitely. They could link me on LinkedIn because I am there a lot. And if they want to reach out to me, they could reach out to me uh, through my Columbia email or they can reach out to me at LinkedIn because I am part of the Community Scholars Program at Columbia University where I'm exploring more on the work that I'm doing and really trying to build consensus uh, to take this approach out into the communities beginning in Harlem and extending to Upper Manhattan. And of course, I've uh, started an initiative uh, which was actually curtailed because of COVID-19, where I'll be doing an extraordinary amount of work in South Africa when it comes to using AI to empower women to go out there and build better lives for themselves and families and, uh, you know, their country. Wow, that's, that's amazing. I'll, I'll make sure to include those uh, links and resources in our show notes. So listeners out there, just head to the show notes and click those links and get in touch with Renee and learn more about her great work. Uh, I have one last question for you, sure. Renee. How can we as a society better relate to one another? I think what we've got to do is better relate to ourselves first. I think many of us have not had that kind of conversation with ourselves that is necessary. I think many of us have got to show ourselves more kindness and more compassion. And I think when we reach to that point, we can better relate with each other. I think it is because we lack that intrinsic healthy relationship with ourselves that many of us aren't able to relate. But I think because of this pandemic, because it has hit us really hard. I, I'm really hoping that it opens that space for us to understand that, wait a minute, you know, wait a minute, exactly as I am and exactly the things that I want for myself and for my family and for my generations are the same thing the other person wants for themselves, their families, their communities, and their generations. So we're in this together. We may be at different levels when it comes to the finances and when it comes to our socioeconomic challenges. But the main thing is that we are human. And if we begin at that place, we are human. And if we understand that we all feel love the same way, I think love gives us an opportunity to know each other. And love gives us an opportunity to be compassionate and to be understanding and to be empathetic. So I think where there is love, there we are there. And once we are there, it gives us that opportunity. Great. Well, we'll leave our listeners with that. So Renee, thank you so much again. Thank you so much, Patrick. Take care. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Relate. You can let me know your thoughts on this episode by going to Apple Podcasts and leaving me a review. Or if you have the Anchor app, feel free to call in and leave a voicemail. I would love to hear from you. You can support this podcast by clicking the link in the show notes. Thank you so much again for tuning in, and I'll catch you all in the next episode.